Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 244. I'm your host, Emily Aries, and today we are bringing back a really important conversation with Dr. Monica O'Neill all about talking through mental health challenges at work. I wanted to reshare this interview, originally aired back in, let's see, September of 2018, Because last Thursday's Boss Tip episode really highlighted how important it is to understand your rights at work right now as it pertains to the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and how that intersects with mental health. Because I don't know about y'all, but I think a lot of people I know and love right now are struggling psychologically. We are under a long-term highly stressful situation as a world with this global pandemic. And the mass amount of uncertainty has made uh, an increase in mental health disorders and just mental health challenges so omnipresent for so many of us that I wanted to revisit this conversation so that we know exactly when and why and whether we should disclose our mental health challenges with our boss because it absolutely has an impact on your rights at work right now. So we're going to jump into the interview uh, first with the listener-submitted career conundrum that came in from Jenny and really spurred this whole conversation. Take a listen. Hi, Emily. My name is Jenny. I'm calling from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And my career conundrum is based on a conversation that you had on this past week's podcast about mental health. At what point do you disclose some mental health challenges that you may have or that your family may have? I've been a mental health advocate since the birth of my youngest daughter about seven years ago. She's now almost eight. And I'm just trying to figure out that fine line again to make sure that I've got that balance in my life. Jenny, thank you so much for calling in this career conundrum. So we can tackle this topic uh, with someone who really can give an expert interview on the on the subject matter here. And that is Dr. Monica O'Neill, who I'm so delighted to introduce you all to. She's a Harvard-trained, licensed clinical psychologist, relationship specialist, and media consultant. Dr. O'Neill completed her schooling at various prestigious institutions in the East Coast, including the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, GW University, and Harvard Medical School. Her professional training includes experience with individual group and family psychotherapy in various outpatient university community and emergency settings. She has 13 years, now 14 years, of direct clinical experience and maintains a private practice in the Back Bay in Boston. Popularly known as Dr. Monica, she specializes in the treatment of adults with anxiety, depression, binge eating disorders, and body image trauma, women's issues, multicultural issues, 
relationship challenges, and interpersonal conflicts. She's awesome. She's here to share with us her take on uh, Jenny's question and give us advice that is as applicable now as when this interview first aired back in September of 2018, all about talking about mental health at work. Dr. Monica, thanks so much for being here. I'm happy to be here, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. So what's your first take on how Jenny should really start thinking about this career conundrum? Well, first and foremost, the thing that I think that's important to keep in mind across the board when it comes to mental health is that it is really, truly your own health issue, like any other health issue. You know, people sometimes think of mental health as not being a real biological, physiological, medical health issue. And it is 100%. And so just as if people keep secrets about other stuff or not keep secrets, but decide when they want to disclose anything, you have the full and complete right and the protection of the law to be able to disclose whenever you want to disclose. That's number one. But I would say number two is if it's really getting in your way, if you are clearly aware that it's impacting your performance and you have a supervisor, boss, or whomever that you really trust, or you have work for a company that has a really good health contingency plan in place, I think that's another time that you'd probably be open and tell the truth. Those are probably the only two things that I would say that I would be really clear about the fact that I'm having a mental health you know, issue struggle if it's really, truly getting in the way. But if you find yourself, like some of the trickier parts is if you find yourself already having disciplinary issues or bumping into your boss, I would say if you're going to bring in mental health issues across the board, and we're not even talking about just like depression, anxiety, bipolarity, whatever, you know, even ADHD and other things like that. I think if you do that, at that point, you should probably get an evaluation and go through HR and have that stuff in place before you then talk to your direct supervisors about it. What does that process sound like? What do, what do you mean by get an evaluation? If you are currently in therapy, you can have your current therapist actually write up information based on you know the federal ADA laws that are really clear about making workplaces to accommodate any kind of health issue. And again, mental health issues that, and that ranges from anything from ADHD to any kind of learning disabilities, you know, like actual being physiologically impaired or whatever. But all of these things are things that are protected in the law. So really what you can do is ask any of your health providers, your mental health provider, your PCP, whomever, you know, to really help you by filling out the ADA paperwork. I think you should get online and really become acquainted with it yourself. And then after that, you can take it to any doctor and talk them through and be clear about what is going on. I love that. I want to speak further on the ADA because I found some really great resources from NAMI, the National Association of Mental Illness, which I will absolutely drop these links into the show notes today or below. Uh, today's interview. And what I learned was the ADA, for those of you who aren't familiar, stands for the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's federal law. It prohibits discrimination against applicants and employees with disabilities, including mental health conditions. But we should also note that the law applies only to private employers with more than 15 employees. So if you're in a tiny PR firm with four people working full time, that's not going to cut it. It also applies across the board for state and local government employers. And in order to qualify for protections under the ADA, the law states that you must be able to show two things. And this, I think, is where your advice on getting that evaluation documented, Dr. Monica, is so on point. First, you have to show 
that a disability substantially impairs one or more major life activities and show that if your condition were left untreated, it would interfere with daily or work activities, such as concentrating, communicating, or regulating emotions. And then second of all, and this I found really interesting, you have to be able to show that you can perform the essential functions of your job with or without reasonable accommodations. The reasonable accommodations is always the tricky part. That's the reason why I think that if you are already having problems with your performance, you should definitely go through your medical provider and HR first and let HR be really almost like an ombuds person to really kind of create the protection and the barrier between you and your direct supervisor who may or may not be understanding what's going on. Right. So you're basically saying use HR if you've got it to help right. That's manage That's what right. you're asking for from your supervisor. And, and those accommodations, which you are entitled to under the ADA, will help you increase and maintain your job performance. Things like flexible work schedules or start time, reduced noise, working from home, uh, and lots of other things that NAMI goes on to list in this article, which I found really helpful. And I'll, I'll make sure to link right. to But the thing is, is it has to be something that does not, that if the accommodation were in place, that you would actually be able to do your job. And it also has to be reasonable, meaning like it's something that can be done within the job. So for instance, if you have narcolepsy, I know that's not necessarily a mental health issue, but it's exacerbated by stress. If you have narcolepsy, you're probably not going to be a train conductor, you know, or a pilot. So like, cause there's no accommodation you can do for people to be able to do that job without that. But mental health stuff across the board, if you have ADHD, you know, you might be able, even if you are in a big cubicle space, something that might be a reasonable thing to ask is to actually have an office space. If you work in a company that's big sure. enough for that and HR would be the people that would really push to do that and be protected and be clear. So you don't get into the situation of having to prove or educate a supervisor about it because the law protects you from having to do that at all. That's right. the best thing about it. I think the kicker is keeping your supervisor in the loop with the help of HR right. so that there's they understand the rationale, which in turn really does out you as having a mental illness. But in my experience, as a supervisor, if my HR department came to me and said, this staff member of yours needs their own office and didn't give me any explanation and that staff person never addressed it, I would feel right. a little out of the loop. Well, I think when I'm saying going to HR, I'm just saying if you specifically are already having performance issues, I think that you should have a conversation with HR, almost kind of like a CYA. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. CYA, just in case you don't know, it's cover your hiney, but with an A. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But I do think that sometimes I've had patients who have really started to bump up against their supervisors and they've tried to have conversations and negotiate and their supervisors really thought that they were playing, especially when it comes to things that are like less visible illness like ADHD and like depression, or even sometimes having symptoms that are related to physical illnesses, such as like postpartum depression, any kind of autoimmune disorders, you know, all of those things can really affect your mental presentation, your ability to think, your ability to be in a positive mood, to be able to get stuff done. And so sometimes those things are harder to explain to people. I think it's appropriate to say, I'm having these health issues. You know, I've already gone through the appropriate channels. I'd like for all the all of us to sit down and talk about it. I think that's the best way to do it. But having HR be one an occupational health, whomever it is in your company, but HR being your best protector if you have it, having them be able to 
advocate for you because that is their job. Yeah. Being able to advocate for you and being clear about it and making it clear that there's no negotiation about specific accommodations. They just have to be done and they have to be done and accepted with a smile and support. I think that's the best thing because it takes you from being put in the position to potentially feel like you have to defend or feel ashamed of something or that you're asking for too much because yeah. they are reasonable. That's the point of it. They're reasonable accommodations. Right. Although I think the negotiation really falls down to reasonable being in the eye of the beholder. So it sounds right. to me like that is where the back and forth well, between sort of, I would say sort of, you know, like if you actually have a medical provider say that these are things that ah. have to be done, you know, they have to do it really, unless there's just no way for them to be able to do it. I see. So like, say if you have somebody who has depression, like major, major depression, right? And it impacts their ability, perhaps maybe, you know, like they're missing more days than what they should. Mm. At that point, you might either like one, a reasonable accommodation might be really to give somebody a leave of absence, you know, without penalty of being fired or, um, you know, or perhaps really create an environment where they can work from home or really have like a specified amount of time and the work week that they can go to a therapy appointment. Those are all things that you can potentially do. Let's talk about a leave of absence for a second. This is also something I came across in the law. This, this boils down to the Family Medical Leave Act, the FMLA, which allows employees to take up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave that protects your benefits and reserves your position in that company in the event of an illness or to help care for a family member who's sick. And mental illness absolutely falls under this legal protection, but... As another disclaimer for those listening, you've got to work a minimum of 12 months for the same employer to qualify for the FMLA, and it only applies to employers with more than 50 employees. So you can learn more about all the contingencies at the Department of Labor, but have you ever seen someone who's going through perhaps a psychiatric crisis, not just chronic illness, but some sort of event or crisis, take use of a leave of absence to to work on getting themselves steady. Well, I've seen it in terms of like mental illness associated with addiction. So if somebody has ever had, you know, like have come to terms with the fact that they have an addiction and they have to go into inpatient treatment, that's usually one of those moments that you see it. The other places that I've seen it have been in college settings where students are perhaps having their first like major depressive episode or their first psychotic break. And those are moments where you definitely would have to go into long-term treatment or take some time off to be able to rehab. But by the time that most people are in like a professional setting, unless they just really have had no symptoms, whatever before, um, if they're having a profound episode of something, you know, the unfortunate thing is, is usually those people will bump into problems before they even recognize what's going on and then not even be in the position to take the help. So I would say that if you know, if there's a family history, even of mental illness in terms of like depression and major anxiety, panic disorders, all of those things, all of these issues, mental health stuff is just as hereditary as like the eye color or the texture of your hair. And so if you know that that you have a significant family history of that going into your workplace, I would encourage you just to hold in mind that if you notice yourself like having a harder time thinking or like getting out of bed in the morning and being late chronically, all of these things, that might be one of those moments to ask yourself, am I starting to have something that is just hereditary in my family, you know? Even transitioning into a work environment after coming from school or whatever, you know, or like not having worked full time, that's a difficult transition. A lot of people are moving to new cities or just really being in new environments. 
that's a stressful event that sometimes can bring about mental health issues, basically. Does that make sense? Totally. And it's a good reminder that acute stress, like a single stressor in your life can in fact trigger more chronic mental health issues that have been otherwise dormant for a long time. Right. And this is such a good reminder, especially for someone who is in the personal development space, that Mm -hmm. there are times when you can't to-do list your way to getting done, right? Like there are times Mm -hmm. when it is not a personal failing. If you find yourself feeling like you cannot keep your head above water in life, in work, whatever, don't internalize all of that. It sounds like Jenny, first of all, who called in today really has already acknowledged. And it sounds like has been getting some support with her mental illness Mm -hmm. or mental health challenges. How would you recommend for someone who's really first becoming aware that they might need help or starting to feel like, hey, I can't keep doing this on my own. I need to start seeking out help. What would you recommend being the first steps for that person to take? Well, I would think the very first step that they should take is if they have a trusted friend or somebody that they know tends to be a little bit more empathic and sensitive to any kind of issue. I think that that would be a first person that I would talk to. And I would say somebody who's a friend, giving yourself a little bit more distance because even in the most supportive of families, sometimes, you know, parents or, you know, siblings or other relatives, they're too personally connected. And, yeah. you know, especially if somebody's a high achiever, they might have a hard time seeing that person really struggling. So perhaps maybe having somebody that's a little bit more objective, a little bit, you know, have a little bit more distance to talk through kind of what you're experiencing is a good place to start. If you mm-hmm. don't have that, hopefully you have medical care, even talking to your PCP, just right. to begin to talk about that kind of stuff is helpful. If all of that also feels exposing, one of the best things you can do is just start to search online. Yeah. And really start to understand, like NAMI is a very good resource. I mean, NAMI was one of those things that I remember, even in my postdoctoral training, having somebody talk about their evolution or like how they, it became clear to them that they had schizophrenia. And it actually helped deepen my understanding even of like treating patients with psychotic disorders. And so like being able to hear other people's narratives, see other people's narratives about how they started to become aware of their mental health might also empower you yeah. to you know, let that be a question and to seek support around that way. But starting it like talking to a friend, looking online, going to a PCP is a fine enough place to start because they will eventually help you you know, get connected to a mental health provider. Absolutely. And I always think this is a good time to bring it up. But the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is or Lifeline, I should say, is also available 24 hours a day and they have an online chat. So if you find yourself struggling with feelings of suicide or self-harm or just chronic depression, you can always give them a call at 800 273 Five five. Now, the irony, Dr. Monica, about all of this is we're really talking today about how to advocate for what you need at work when you don't feel necessarily like in your strongest mental position. How would you recommend folks who are struggling go about beginning that conversation with HR or their supervisor if the mental health challenges that they're facing are just bearing down on them at at its worst? Well, so there's two things that I was thinking about. Like, you know, if somebody has already is going into a new job, for instance, and they have had a pre-existing appointment, you know, say like somebody comes and sees me during the middle of the day, right? And they want to keep that appointment. I always educate 
And I think it's a, it's a bigger challenge, I would say, I've seen with people who tend to be younger, like more in the millennial age range yeah. of going into work because there's so much pressure to perform and to be there. Totally. And so I think sometimes it's hard to appreciate that this is a right. This is something that your supervisors have to acknowledge. And so, you know, being able to, when you first go into a job, I say that when you even get offered a position, when you're negotiating or having a clarity about the terms from the very outset to be able to say, I'm excited about this position. I do have a weekly appointment that I need to keep that is X, Y, and Z time. So we need to, I, you know, we, yeah. I want to make sure that there's a flexibility around my hours and my schedule so that I can keep this appointment. Like not even to ask for it. Right. That's what I tell people. Don't ask for it. Just to simply say I have a weekly appointment. If somebody is savvy enough and thoughtful enough, they'll figure out that it's therapy. Right. I always have this debate in the lost up courage community about pregnancy disclosure during the interview process oh, too. Yeah. But yeah. Not that that is by any means a mental health disorder, but. Oh, I wouldn't do it during the interview process. I would do it after you get an right. offer. And I think that's key. And the reason here right. for our listeners to really pay attention to is once an offer has been made, if you do choose then to disclose that you have a mental health issue that you need this weekly appointment for, if they were to rescind that offer, they, the employer would be opening themselves up to a major (laughs) potential lawsuit. So yes, not, they wouldn't be opening themselves up. They would be losing. Exactly, (laughs) They would be losing. That's the bottom line. So yeah, always wait. You can make a strong case at that point. This employer rescinded my job offer because of my mental health situation that I did not disclose up until the offer was made. So get that offer in writing. Don't disclose yes. until you're in negotiation. And like I always say, negotiation only begins after an offer has been made. So I think that's a right. really key point. So I like that idea of potentially disclosing right from the outset, but it sounds like Jenny's right. been with her employer for a while and is coming right. around to the idea that, Hey, I, I need to disclose. How do you recommend? Is it written form? Obviously going to HR. Is it? I think it's something you have to go and say. I think, again, it just depends. Like, it's a hard thing. You know, you've talked about the idea of toxic work environments. You know, if your environment is so toxic and whether or not you feel safe, like if you know that if you were to actually go and make this disclosure, whether or not your supervisor is going to hold that against mm. you, be negative or whatever. And you probably can pick that up based on how they might speak about other stuff in the language that they use. And if it's unsafe, you might really just have to reassess and ask yourself, is this the best work environment for me based on the things that I'm struggling with? You know, because the truth is you're only going to get as far as much as you're protected by HR and how sensitive your supervisor actually really is. And some people are not. So if Jenny, if she knows that her supervisor is a person that has perhaps some personal inside and flexibility and perhaps some compassion and depth of thought, again, something you can pick up from somebody To be able to say, you know, I don't know if you're aware. I know that even just, I think the number one thing is to start off from acknowledging perhaps the ways in which it's getting in the way and work. Say like, you know, I know that I've been late quite a bit, or I know that, you know, I'm not as efficient as I need to be recently or whatever. And say like, I know these things are going on. You can actually see this change in my performance, this change in my behavior. I want to let you know what's going on and, and to simply say, and you have to link it back to the actual symptoms of it. So be able to say, I know that I've been getting in late. I have, I've been struggling with the episode of depression. And as you know, with depression, it makes it hard to get up. You have real low energy. So sometimes it's hard for me to concentrate here and get as much done. And I'm aware of the impact it's having on my work 
here and also in my life in general. Mm. And so I want to be as proactive as I possibly can and to get mm-hmm. some support around it. So I need to set some time aside, yeah, you know, to have this appointment. I love that. Thank you so much for modeling that conversation. Cause I think that's really helpful for our listeners. And as a reminder, you know, you might want to choose to have that conversation on a good day because having the mental (laughs) energy to bring your thoughtfulness to that conversation that it really requires, you might not want to ignore it until you're having a desperate day and you need to disclose. Like you might want to be preventative and give yourself that self-care by thinking, okay, today I'm feeling good. I'm going to tackle this issue today for myself, for my future depressed self and how I can sort of stand up for her right now. And the other issue is I would say that sometimes how this stuff gets played out is that your boss might pull you into the office to either give you feedback or to have to provide criticism about something that you're doing or some sort of reprimanding of like a mess up or whatever hiccup at work. Those are the times most often that people might say, oh, I'm depressed or whatever, you know, and they'll be in, in the hard part is, is that's still a very valid explanation, but it's harder for somebody to hear it in that moment because they might hear it as defensive. So if you find yourself, you know, making that kind of disclosure, just in the heat of the moment and whatever, if you find yourself saying, well, I've been really depressed, it's hard for me to get there. If you can say instead, perhaps, you know, if you do that to go back and say, you know what, I don't want to be defensive about this. I don't want you to hear this as an excuse. I hearing you say this, I'm very aware now how much this is impacting me. And I want you to know that this is because of my symptoms. And therefore I need to do something about it. Do I have your support? Yeah. Or I need your support yeah. to do something about it. You know, you're reminding me of something I read a while back about women's tears in the workplace. Oh yeah. Because I, I can't imagine having that conversation you just described without crying. <laughs> you know, if right. I'm being called in for a disciplinary chat and I am depressed AF, I am going to cry as I disclose. And that is not necessarily going to be the way I'd intended to disclose. Right. And I've almost found, and this is not true across the board, but I, I wonder how the gender politics play into this. I've almost right. found that men witnessing women's tears like causes a complete and total freak out like this yeah, is they, they terrified terrified engine sirens going off in their brain what can right. i do to make her stop crying that's all they can think <laughs> and i'm not saying that all women treat that differently but i've been on the receiving end of, of crying co-workers a few times but i've been the crying co-worker myself and i do yeah. feel like you've got to know your audience and yeah it's a hard thing to say because who can control when they're completely emoting that that much but what's your take on all that so if you start to cry, you really just become inconsolably crying and you know that the other person on the other end, you can see them getting irritated or impatient about it. I would say do yourself a favor and just simply say, you know what, this is a really important conversation now, but I'm just not in a place to have it. Right. I just need to get, you know, I need to get myself together so we can come back to it or maybe we can pick it back up via email or something yeah. like that, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Or start the conversation via email. Yeah, I've also seen people say, to frame your tears if you can think of it in the moment i'm such an easy crier i cry at like commercials that move me you know mm-hmm. but if mm-hmm. i were really crying at work in front of a colleague when i didn't necessarily want to stress makes me cry for sure i'll share a quick anecdote mm-hmm. actually if you're if you'll you'll mm-hmm. allow i uh recently have been really stressed out about the book editing process which is exciting i'm mm-hmm. finishing my first book yay but 
Congratulations. Thank you. Editing, as my friend Maxie McCoy warned me on this very podcast, is a way hard process. And all Mm -hmm. weekend, I had one weekend and I said, you know what? I'm not going to work too much on the weekend, but I got to get this deadline done. So I'm just going to work on chapter one. All weekend, I struggled, didn't get done. And I end my weekends whenever I'm home in Denver with a drum lesson because I'm playing the drums, which is super fun. Oh, cool. It's like my favorite form of stress relief. And my kind, sweet drum teacher is like a 23-year-old rock band member slash middle school music teacher. He's like the most happy-go-lucky guy. And I am just stressed out beyond belief when I show up for my lesson. I sit down behind the drum kit and I just start crying. (laughs) And bless his heart, he looks at me and he's like, oh my goodness, I've never seen you like this. Let's talk about it. What's going on? And he he later told me that his mother is a therapist. And his empathy skills are through the roof. And after a a bit of saying, this has nothing to do with you. I'm just in a really crazy place in this editing process. We got Mm -hmm. to the drumming, which was like the best form of stress release ever. And I was back on track by the, by the end of it. But it's hard to say to somebody to think about providing context to your tears when you're in that moment. But I have found that when you are especially crying in front of a guy who has that deer in the headlights look like, oh my God, what do I do to just immediately make it clear what it's about or that it's not Mm -hmm. about you. And by providing Mm -hmm. that kind of context, you can allow the conversation to move ahead in a productive manner. And you can even say, you can even like put it out there that I know that this is not something you're comfortable with. Yeah, I'm just, I cry. I I actually do cry when I get really angry. Like when I'm really angry, I'm not one of those people that just like fights, but I will actually like start to cry because I'm just so overwhelmed. And that's, and it's usually a sign that I'm just really hurt and really angry. And I know that for myself. And so, or, you know, so I would tell people like, it's okay to simply say like, look, when I get hit, like with a a lot of emotion, I'm not crying just because you're telling me I'm doing something wrong. I'm crying because I knew, you know, I'm just stressed out about it because I, I believe you're right, but I just need a little time to like, just to sit with this and process this. Maybe we can pick up the conversation or if I, how about if I email you like my thoughts about it? you know, and they'll still probably be on pins and needles and be a little bit more graceful, but even sometimes giving them information a little bit about what is making you cry totally will help their anxiety just go down totally, a lot. Totally. And then they can hear whatever you're saying a lot better. Yeah. I think that's a great point. But I will say if you have somebody that really truly is a jerk in their response, you don't have to think of this as like, I need to have this be accepted by my supervisor. You, you know, essentially what I'm saying consistently is you don't. If you're the beginning of the process, don't ask for permission. Just make it a basic negotiation. If you were going to get, you know, chemotherapy or radiation treatment, right. you wouldn't be negotiating the time. Right. Right. If any other kind of infusion, you would not be negotiating the time. If you had to have an emergency surgery, you would be negotiating it. It's still a medical condition. So it's not something you should be seeking approval or permission of. And I just want people to know that and be clear about that. I'm so glad you said that. So if you have a, a real kind of like response from anybody, that is information for you to hold on to and to say that this is already I'm struggling with a mental health thing. And this is response is only going to make it worse. And I have to own that this is also my biology, my physiology, and I want to put myself in the best environment. Totally. And document it <laughs> and report it and bring it to HR, write a memo, right? Right. Do whatever you need to, if you can get a different supervisor, that's great. But if the culture of the company really is like, mm, mm, you know, 
And I think people who are in the particular fields like older, larger, larger companies, say financial firms, consulting firms, I know that they've struggled with this a little yeah. bit more because there is a culture of kind of like being steely and Suck completely like having a plume and all the time, yes. all the time, you know, and so this can be trickier in those environments, yeah. but it's still necessary to do. And sometimes the best way you can advocate for yourself is to advocate for a new job. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's really what we do here at Bossed Up is help women craft that sustainable career path, whether it's at your current employers or not. Right. So my last question for you, Dr. Monica, yes. is the nature of mental health issues are such that they are invisible. And so I, I wonder yes. if you would talk a little bit about managing the stigma that can come, especially if word gets out beyond just HR and your supervisor. It, is there a, a disbelief that people run into? Have you seen your clients be oh, faced yeah. with that? And, and how have they managed mentally, personally, and professionally to handle such a stigma against folks with mental illness at work? If we take depression in itself, right? Sure. The nature of depression, the actual symptoms of depression is a lot of like negative self-talk and negative self-reflection, a lot of internalization of any problem that happens. It's something like it's raining outside, you know, and like, of course, it's always going to be raining outside. It's because, you know, I should have like spent time in the sun over the weekend and now it's raining. You know, it's like that kind of stuff. You, you know, like there's always a personal connection of doing something wrong. Yeah. So that is the nature of that actual particular illness. That is just how it impacts most people. Right. And so then if you have like a work setting where people are saying, you're just being lazy or you're just full of, you're dramatic or, or you're like, so negative. Because our you're culture so is negative. so pro smiley face, you know? Right. Yeah. You're too negative. You make people uncomfortable. Like all of those things are going to be feeding and speaking to your actual symptom, which is only going to make things much worse. There's probably very little that advice that I would be able to give somebody that would help them in the moment. Right. Not hear that as true. Right. Because they're going to hear that as true because that's already what they're believing in the moment. So the best thing I would say is, again, if you have like a trusted somebody outside of you, a doctor, whomever, right. that you may have already had that conversation with, when you talk to them about it, they're going to be the people that will kind of help hold you steady and to remind you that this is your depression talking. Like that's something I always say to my patients, like to say to them, this is just my depression talking in those moments, yeah. right? That's a really great piece of advice. And it's just a reminder that therapy is amazing. <laughs> and that yeah. even if you're not someone who struggles with a chronic mental health disorder of any kind, if you're going through a, an adjustment in life that is tough, you deserve some therapy too. And most health insurance Therapy's the best. providers, yeah, I mean, everybody deserves it. If you're not getting it from your family yeah. or loved ones and nobody in your circle is a truly profound empath, pay someone to be your empath, right? Pay someone to be <laughs> your sounding board and use your benefits. Yeah. As my primary care physician told me years ago when I was really in the weeds and really at my lowest, trying to figure out how to transition my life from being totally burnt out and martyring myself for everybody to something different that I didn't even know was possible mm -hmm. at the time. She said to me, because mm -hmm. I was broke, I said to her, I can't afford therapy. Like, what are you even bringing this up for? And she said, Emily, yeah. this will be the best money you have ever spent. And it's the best investment. Yeah. And she was totally is. right. She was totally right. right. So just a reminder. Yeah. I tell people all the time, one of the best gifts you can give yourself, especially women, you know, I know you have a lot of the audience or 
you know, women who are in their like twenties yeah. and early thirties, I think there's no better gift to give yourself than the real gift of self-understanding in order to get rid of things like guilt, really a sense of self-empowerment, sense of self-love, the ability to hear your own voice. Cause as a, you know, a society as women, we are taught to listen to other people, to pay attention to other people's feelings. Sometimes over time, that voice inside of us that tells us when we're doing something that makes us feel good or makes us feel bad or like leading us in the wrong path, it becomes quieter and quieter and harder to hear and more muddled among other people's stuff. So I say that it's the best thing that you can do for yourself. 100%. That is so beautiful. And the other thing is, I guess the big picture of this is, is that, you know, the best people who are going to advocate for themselves at work, you're going to be able to do this. Like you can take this as a script if this is just something you're struggling with doing and do all of these things. But the people who are going to do it the best probably are people who have come to terms, or I say to even become friends with their mental health issues, you know, like to let it be just a part of who they are. It's not all of who they are, but just let it be a part of who they are, you know, something that's on the couch. Because the truth is I tell people, you know, I've had patients who say have major anxiety disorder and have panic attacks and like, they'll have something that is stressful in their lives. And I'm always like, okay, you're feeling really anxious right now. You're not sleeping. You're doing X, Y, and Z. And I look at them and I'm like, well, it sounds like that's right on time. Yeah. Sounds like it's perfectly on time. We know you have this thing. Like, of course, that is going to be how you react, right? So it helps empower them to actually plan ahead Mm. or to know or not to get stuck in the moment that what's happening is real. They can say, that's my anxiety talking, depression. If you come up against some small disappointment or whatever, you have a series of like just crappy things happen, more than likely you're going to react by wanting to stay in bed, feeling tired, being negative, not really wanting to do things, kind of avoiding people. And I'm like, it's on time. Yeah. That's how it goes. That's, that's, how, that's how it works, you know? And it helps people again to be able to say, this is a symptom. I get it. And that makes you feel more empowered to take good care of yourself in total and advocating for yourself at work, going to therapy, you know, spending time with people who help you feel like a normal person. Right. All of those things are good because the truth is we are normal people. Even all of us who have our own mental health issues, we're normal people. And, you know, we just have moments right. where it's like part of the human totally. condition. Does it make sense? Absolutely. I am like nodding my head vigorously over here. And I can't thank you enough, Dr. Monica O'Neill, for, yeah. for joining us today, for dropping these knowledge bombs and for just sharing your such an encouraging spirit with our Thank listeners you, yeah. today and reminding me why we teamed up with you so many years ago to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to be of help. And, you know, I told you I'm really proud of you and everything that you're doing. So that's really great. If you want to follow up or learn more about Dr. Monica O'Neill, head to Dr. Monica O'Neill, that's O-N-E-A-L.com to learn more. And Jenny, thanks again for calling in with your career conundrum. If you've got a career conundrum you want us to tackle next on the pod, give our hotline a ring and leave a voicemail for us now at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. So I challenge each and every one of you listening today, if you've been thinking maybe you should call into the podcast, but you've really been putting it off, share your boss move now. I promise we'll never pick up the phone. It goes straight to voicemail from our Google voicemail inbox. But it means the world to me, and it really makes a difference in our community. It's something I feel strongly about, and I just thought you should know why. Once again, that number is 910-668-BOSS.
And now it's time for this week's Boss Move of the Week. This week, I want to give a big hearty shout out to one of our longtime Bossed Up community members, a Bossed Up Bootcamp alumna and a member of the trainer team, Maggie Germano. Maggie Germano is a phenomenal money coach for women. She's been right here on the Bossed Up podcast on our second ever episode all about when is it time to quit. That's episode two. And she also joined me on episode 72, Women and Wealth, which was actually a recording of our first ever live podcast conversation. She is truly a phenomenal financial coach for anyone who needs to get a handle on her money. And this week, her boss move that she shared in the Bossed Up Courage community was this. I launched my brand new membership community. It's something I've been wanting to do for a long time, and I finally did it. It's a safe space for women to talk about money without fear of judgment. Her community is called Money Circle, which is also the name of her phenomenal podcast. So if you're listening to this in your favorite podcast app and you want to learn more about managing your money, search for Money Circle right now or head to maggiegermano.com slash moneycircle to learn more about her new online community that she's creating to help women have a safe space to talk through money challenges. Congratulations, Maggie, and such a boss move. We're so proud of you. And as someone who's navigating a small business pivot myself, I tip my hat to you for bringing your great work that you do in person now online. All right, boss, that's what we've got for you today. I would love to hear from you. If you have a career conundrum that you want me to tackle next on the podcast, be like Jenny. Call it in. Leave a voicemail on my Bossed Up podcast hotline right now at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. And if you found today's conversation helpful, make sure to share it with the women in your world who you know could use it or the men in your world who you know could use it. Head to bossedup.org slash episode 244 for all of today's show notes and a perfectly wonderful place to share that episode on all the platforms. Until next time, let's keep Boston in pursuit of our purpose, and together we'll lift as we climb.